invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with us to the Gospel of John. Jacob basically preached the whole sermon, so... The Gospel of John, chapter 1. As he said, we are going to be looking at the testimony of John the Baptist this morning. If you're taking notes, that is essentially the title of our sermon, the testimony of John the Baptist. Very creative, I know. <clears throat> Let's remind ourselves briefly what we have seen in the prologue of John. As you know, we completed the prologue last week that runs from verses 1 through 18. We have established that the purpose of John's gospel is the same title as our series. It's that you may believe. John has written these things that you may believe and that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have eternal life. That is John's focus in this gospel. And we will see that as you've already heard me reiterate a few times now, we're going to see that over and over and over again. So every story that John includes in his gospel, every detail that he includes here, it is all to serve the purpose of helping us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And so, all the people that he's going to include, everything from the prologue that we saw, it's going to help us to take some understanding into the narrative of why did he say this, what does this mean exactly, and it's all pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. We've also already learned a little bit about John the Baptist, haven't we? We learned about Jesus, that he is the Word, that he became flesh, that all things were made through him. We have learned that he is eternal, that he is pre-existent and self-existent, and that he is co-existent with the Father. We've touched about on the incarnation. We've touched on a lot in the prologue, but also about John the Baptist. Namely, what did John tell us? That he was a man sent from God, and that he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness about the light, and wouldn't she know it, the purpose of that was so that all would believe. That was the purpose. And so John is reiterating and reinforcing the purpose of his gospel. And so we're actually going to get to see, as we begin today to transition into the narrative uh, section of John, the, uh, the gospel of John, we're actually going to see that play out in real time. That John will acknowledge that he is not the light, and he's going to bear witness to the light. And it's going to be for the end result of people believing. And we'll see at least two of the three today. That's where we are. Today we're going to again look at the testimony of John the Baptist. So let's read it together if you would stand with us. John chapter 1 verses 19 through 34. This is the word of the one true living God. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, 
I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Help us to see and understand your word. Help us to love what we see. Let it affect our hearts this morning. I pray that you would use my meager efforts this morning to communicate your word clearly, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would leave here worshiping Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. You'll notice some key details missing from the beginning of speaking about John the Baptist. As we have said, John is laser-focused on drawing out exactly what he wants you to see about each story so he doesn't spend any time telling you about who John the Baptist really was, his background, his birth. He doesn't tell you like in Luke chapter 1 about the angel coming to Zechariah. He doesn't tell you even about uh, John the Baptist's stylish wardrobe or his diet. He doesn't tell you about any of those things. He just dives right in. He wants you to see a couple of things. We saw three different interactions. I would say it's actually two different interactions. The first two are one interaction, and then the third one is taking place on the next day. But John is saying, John the Apostle wants to us to see three important things in what John the Baptist is responding. What is he saying? What is in his response? It's really easy for us in the narrative, in the gospel, to just read and just think these are just details. This is just a conversation. This is just this or that. And we glance and glaze right over so much depth and so much of uh, the the, the Spirit of God through the author is trying to show us. And so we want to focus in on that today. 
we do know a couple of details about John the Baptist because of the synoptic gospels. We know that he comes from a priestly line because Zechariah was a priest. He was serving in the temple when the, the angel of the Lord came to him. We know that he was in the desert and he was in the wilderness and that he did indeed eat locusts and was indeed covered in animal hair. We know that he was a fiery preacher who preached repentance. We know that he was well known and that many crowds were going out to see him. We know all of these things about John the Baptist. But so we're going to revisit some of those details that he's in the wilderness and what he's wearing and what he's eating, because those are actually not just funny details. They actually play an important part explaining who John the Baptist was and part of his character. Because since he was part of a priestly line, of a priestly family, he, believe it or not, didn't have to be in the wilderness. He would have been a part of a very noble family, and he would have been taken care of. So evidently, at some point along the line, John the Baptist has taken it upon himself, most likely, we could assume, under the leading of the Lord, to vow himself to a vow of poverty, uh, perhaps not a vow, but at least a lifestyle of poverty. And we know that because he's in the wilderness and he's wearing animal skin. He's not, or animal fur. He's not clothed well. He's not wearing a tunic and he's not eating uh, well-known foods or, or desirable foods. He's eating locusts and honey. So he's out there in the wilderness and people are coming to him. And obviously this is causing an uproar. What is going on out in the wilderness and that's where we see this delegation coming to John the Baptist. Evidently, they are a little upset that he has not received an official sanction from the temple. They obviously did not send him to start preaching and baptizing. We know from verse 24 that these, this group of people is sent from the Pharisees. And so they're sending him out there. Go check and see what's going on with this John the Baptist. Find out who he is. Find out what he thinks he's doing. Who has given him the permission to be out preaching and teaching and baptizing people. And that's where we pick up here. The Jews were sent, the, the Jews sent priests and Levites rather from Jerusalem. We're going to see that word over and over again throughout John's gospel. It's used some 70 times, Jews. It's not always just referring to ethnicity. It's actually very often referred to, used to refer to the enemies of God, those who are against Jesus. You'll see often throughout the gospel of John uniquely that whenever he's writing the Jews, there is some sort of conflict going on between the Jews and Jesus. So that's something for you to file away later on. We're going to revisit that. But the apostle tells us that they were sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. It's very interesting. Some scholars would say that the Levites often in the Old Testament times and during this time under the Old Covenant, that the Levites actually would often serve as a sort of riot police. They were sort of soldiers in the temple service. So they're sending this very impressive delegation out to this man who's eating locusts, probably mid-locusts, when these people show up, right? I don't know, maybe that's my imagination running wild. I apologize. 
But he's out there in the wilderness nonetheless. And here comes this lofty delegation made up of priests sent by some of the, the Pharisees. And we're probably looking at some temple officials here. This is a stately affair going on to see this drab man out in the wilderness. So evidently, this is a very important thing that they're doing. They're not just coming out there just because they're curious. They're probably a little upset at this point about him being out in the wilderness. Who are you? Is what they ask. This is a way of saying, they're not asking his name. This is essentially a way of saying, who do you think you are out here preaching and baptizing people? Who do you think you are? They must have asked him something about if he thought he was the Messiah, because we're told by the apostle in verse 20 that he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is a very emphatic statement that's being made here. We know that because of the apostle saying he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He's not just writing in a strange way. He's emphasizing that John the Baptist was very strong in his response. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Let's keep in mind that at this time they would have been expecting the Messiah. It's not as though when Jesus shows up on the scene that everybody is caught by surprise because they didn't think that the Messiah was coming soon. They lived in eager expectation of the arrival of the Messiah. They wanted Messiah to come. They were doing things because in a certain way that they thought would coax and, and urge the Messiah to come. They were anxious and eager for him to arrive. So obviously this is the forefront of their mind. There's this wild man out in the wilderness preaching in a very powerful way and he's repent, telling people to repent and baptizing them for repentance and a great multitude is going out there to see him. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe that's why he hasn't received permission from the temple. It's because this is the Messiah. But John the Baptist says, no, I am not the Christ. Remember, John has already told us that he was not the light. And here is John the Baptist saying, I am not the light. I am not the Christ. That's not who I am. Though John's ministry was garnering a lot of attention and drawing crowds, he did not perceive himself to be more than he was, did he? He knew, I'm not the light. I'm not the Christ. What then? Well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? That's a strange question, isn't it? Are you Elijah? If you're not the Christ, you must be Elijah. Why would that have been on their minds? For several reasons, actually. Elijah, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we're told, had the same style as John the Baptist, wearing animal fur. Elijah was also a man out in the wilderness calling people to repent, often to King Ahab calling him to repent and turn back to the Lord. Elijah was told in 1 Kings 17 to go out into the wilderness and God was going to send ravens to feed him. I would imagine if a raven is bringing food to someone, 
He's probably not bringing a New York strip. He's probably bringing something that a raven would eat, wouldn't it? I don't know. That's guesswork there, of course. But perhaps that would give us some inclination of understanding of the diet of John the Baptist. Perhaps this is exactly what's going on here, is that he is relying entirely on what the Lord provides for him out in the wilderness. And he's not out hunting game, but he's just being provided for by the Lord. But those are smaller details. A greater reason why they would think that perhaps this is Elijah is because in Malachi 4, which is the last prophet before John the Baptist, in Malachi 4, God says, I'm going to send Elijah before I come. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah. This would have been prevalent on their mind because Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. The space between Malachi and Matthew is representative of some 400 years and 400 years or more of silence from the word of God. They had not received a word from the Lord. There were not any more prophets. Malachi was the last one. In Malachi's letter, Malachi's, uh, the book of Malachi, rather, is not a pleasant book. It is full of evidence that Israel was apostate once again. They had turned from the Lord, and God is greatly displeased with them. So they would be expecting both the Messiah and Elijah, because when Elijah can be found, the Messiah will be shortly behind him. But what's his answer? No, I'm not Elijah. As a side note here, this is actually a difficult text because John, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, you know who he says John the Baptist is? Elijah. He says, if you can accept it, he is the prophet Elijah who is to come. And here is John the Baptist saying, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, what's going on here? Is the Bible can the Bible not be trusted like some people say? Does this mean our Bible is not inerrant and infallible? Well, of course not. Thankfully, we have the words of the angel Gabriel in Luke who tells us as he is prophesying to Zechariah that he is going to give birth to John the Baptist. What does he say about him other than he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah? In the spirit and power of of Elijah. So John the Baptist is saying, are you Elijah? Well, no, I'm John. I'm John. It's really that simple. No, I'm John. Who's Elijah? What? No, I'm John. Because he, but he was operating in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was blessed by God uniquely, just the same way Elijah was. And perhaps this is even another evidence of the humility of John the Baptist, not wanting to think of himself more than he actually is. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? Well, isn't Elijah the prophet? Won't the Messiah be the prophet? Well, this is a, just a more bizarre thing to say, except for Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses tells the Israelites that God will raise up from among you a prophet like myself, and you will listen to him. God will give him his word, and you will listen to him. Who was the prophet? It's that prophet. So they have these eager expectations of this coming prophet. 
this coming Elijah, this coming Messiah. And so that's why these things are at the forefront of their mind. And John says he confesses and does not deny each time. No, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. Okay, well, then who are you? If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then who are you and what are you doing out here? What does he say? Who are you? I am a voice. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not this great prophet. I'm just a voice. This is essentially what every minister is. is just a voice. He's not the light. He's not the Christ. He's not some great prophet of old or to come. But he's just a voice proclaiming to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist's ministry was all about preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. What can we learn from this response? It's very interesting. In Isaiah 40, John the Baptist is telling us something very important about Jesus. In Isaiah 40, this is where he's quoting from. You could turn there if you would like. But Isaiah 40, it's verses 3 through 5. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And in Isaiah, it actually says, the voice of one crying... And the quotation is, in the wilderness make a way. But he quotes it as saying, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. We'll get to that in just a second. But what's most important that we gather from that prophecy is he says, make straight the way of the Lord. And in our English Bibles, Lord there is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And in case you're not familiar with what that means, that represents the covenant, holy name of God, Yahweh. When we read from the Psalms for our call to worship, we're reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which actually puts his name there. It doesn't have Lord, it says Yahweh. This is his name. That passage says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. And here is John the Baptist saying, I am the forerunner of one who is to come after me. And the prophecy of me says to make straight the way of Yahweh. Well, who's coming after John? Whose way is supposed to be made straight? Jesus. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Who's coming? Jesus. He identifies the coming of Christ with the coming of Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. This does not mean that Jesus is the Father, but it does mean that Jesus has been given the name above every other name, which is Yahweh, the one true living God, the Father and Christ share the name of of Yahweh. This is an incredible statement that John is making. He's telling them that he's the messenger being sent before the covenant God of Israel. 
The Messiah is soon to follow. He's coming right after me. This seems to go right over their heads, doesn't it? Perhaps they just pay no mind, seeing that he's not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. You're just a voice. What makes me say that? We'll look at verse 24. They had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptized? I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Well, then why are you baptized? What? Did you not just hear what I said? The, the Yahweh is coming. Make straight the way of Yahweh. Well, why are you baptizing? That's how the Pharisees were. That's all they cared about is power and authority. Over and over again, they were obsessed with having their power and their authority. Everything is about it. You're not commissioned by the Sanhedrin. You're not commissioned because you're the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet who gave you the right to do this. If you're just a voice crying out in the wilderness, they're here now questioning the authority of John the Baptist. He says, I baptize with water. Isn't that a great answer? Well then... This is just so funny. Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? I baptize with water. John, I don't think that's actually an answer to the question. We're not asking you what you baptize with. Who told you to do this? I baptize with water. What? I baptize with water. Who gave you the right I baptize with water? Matthew 3.11 tells us that this was a baptism for repentance. The waters did not cause them to repent. It was an indication that they were repenting before the Lord and they were going down into the waters of baptism, signifying that they're cleansing themselves of the old ways. So who gives you the right to do this? John the Baptist, I baptize with water, obviously. He says, among you stands one you don't know. Among you stands one that you don't know. This points us to the spiritual blindness of the people because they did not have the eyes to see what was right in front of them. They didn't catch the statement regarding the coming of, the, of Yahweh, the coming of the Messiah. So surely they don't have the eyes to see Jesus as the Messiah. After all, in the prologue, John wrote, we have seen his glory. Not everyone did. They didn't recognize the significance of the statement from John the Baptist or the significance of the person of Jesus Christ. And just as John was shouting in the wilderness, we get the impression that there is symbolism here, that perhaps the wilderness was a symbol for the wilderness of their hearts, the dry and barren land of the spiritual establishment of apostate Israel. You want to make way for the wilderness? It doesn't involve paving a road for him out in the actual forest. It involves making room for him in your heart that is dry and barren in your apostasy. They thought they were righteous, that they were God's holy people, when really they were nothing more than an empty wilderness. But John the Baptist says something here about the worthiness of the one who stands among them. You don't know him. You don't know him. But I'm not even worthy to untie his straps. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. 
I'm not even worthy to clean his feet. What is he saying here? This is obviously a statement of humility, but it is a very strong statement of humility. During this time, the master of a house, his slaves would have different responsibilities in the home. And the job that was reserved for the lowest slave in the ranks, do you know what it was? It was taking off the sandals of his master at the end of the day and cleaning his feet. This was the lowest job among slaves. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to have the lowest job amongst all the slaves of my master. He is indicating both his humility, but more importantly, the glory of the one who is coming. The supremacy of the coming one. The coming of a Messiah. Why? Because he's Yahweh. I don't have the worth to even take off his shoes. The coming of Messiah to the Jews was not an opportunity for them to have pride, but instead it should give them pause. It shouldn't cause them to puff up their chest, but to lower themselves in the dust. We move now to the testimony of John in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. We've seen John the Baptist bear witness that he's not the light. And now John the Baptist here explicitly bears witness to the light. Behold the light, the Lamb of God. How could he be worthy to serve him after all? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How could he be worthy to serve this one? How could any of us be worthy to serve the glorious king? He says, behold, it means look, there he is. He's calling their attention not to himself, but to Christ. And this is certainly what every minister must do. Is not preach in such a way that draws attention to himself, but points people to Jesus. That says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world away and he can take your sin away too. Behold, the Lamb. I love the way that Spurgeon said it. He says to preach Christ, Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and nothing else. Christ. What does John the Baptist say about this Christ when he calls attention to him? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Could there be a less threatening animal than a lamb? And yet this is what Yahweh associates himself with? Is a lamb? Prepare the way in your heart for a lamb? Here they're waiting for and expecting this geopolitical mastermind who's going to come and and have military might and, and vanquish all of their enemies. And who does God send a lamb? Of course, this is a reference to Isaiah 53. They wanted a mighty, conquering Messiah. And God sent a suffering Messiah. But one who is no less victorious, but one who would conquer through suffering. He did not come to slaughter the enemies, 
but as a lamb to be slaughtered. Could there be a less threatening animal? But of course, this is also a reminder of the Passover lamb, isn't it? We're going to revisit that later in John. That right at the time that Jesus is being crucified, John is showing us that it's the same time that the Passover lamb would be slaughtered in observance of Passover. But this lamb is not like any other lamb, is it? This lamb takes the sin away. Back in Leviticus 16, we learn about the scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess all of the sins of Israel. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness. And it would be representative of this goat taking the sin of the people away. This was pointing to none other than the Lamb of God who would actually do this, who would actually be the fulfillment of this. The point wasn't to have a a scapegoat. The point was to point to Jesus, that he would be the one who does this. John the Baptist shows us that he understands the mission of Christ, that he came to deliver people from their sins. How? By bearing their sin and so removing their guilt from them. And it was only the Lamb of God who could do this. As you know, we've talked about recently the Day of Atonement. They would sacrifice an animal. The blood would temporarily cover the people's sins, but year after year, they're coming back to have to offer sacrifices because the blood of animals could never take the sin of the people away. But the animal had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. It couldn't be the sickly one that you didn't want anyway. It had to cost you something. It had to be the precious one, the one that is without blemish. But of course, again, this was not the point. Hebrews 10 tells us that the law has a shadow of the good things to come, but not the true form of the realities And because of that, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near until the Lamb of God came. I love that verse 1 there in chapter 10 of Hebrews says that it's just the shadow of the coming reality. It was just a shadow. What does that mean? He's telling us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, but it was never meant to. It was always just a shadow standing, pointing to Jesus. And now we live in the time where we have the substance. We have the reality. We don't stand in shadows any longer. But their faith during those times of the Old Covenant, their faith wouldn't be in the actual work of the sacrifice, but of what God had promised that it would do. But you see, the Jews needed a lamb. The Pharisees, they needed a lamb. The early church needed a lamb. And every one of you in here this morning needs a lamb. I need a lamb. Not one of us can trust in the shadows for what only the substance can do. We can't trust in the shadows of the law 
of animal sacrifice or of the vain pursuit of self-righteousness. We need a lamb. And here is John the Baptist saying, Behold the lamb! What good news this is, John! It's why the word became flesh to dwell among us. So that in that flesh, he could be slaughtered as a lamb. The word who was in the beginning with God and was God. You ever stop to think about that? The one who was with God and was God. The word, the one through whom everything was made. The one who is light, who gives life. He became flesh so that he could be slaughtered. Not to come and restore the kingdom to Israel. Not to come and vanquish their enemies. But to take away our one true enemy, sin. We can never know God so long as we bear the guilt of our own sin. We can never serve God and glorify Him lest our sins be removed. Knowing that, the Word became flesh. The Word came not as a victorious warrior prince slaying the political enemies of Israel. The Word came as a lamb to be slain that He may purchase forgiveness for the undeserving. The Lamb of God. And notice too that He says, takes the sin of the world away. Now this would be often misinterpreted by people to say that the whole world is going to be saved. But we know that that's not the case. What would he be saying? That he's not just the Messiah for the Jews, not just for Palestine, not just for Israel, not just for Jerusalem, but he is the lamb for the whole world. He's the lamb for everyone. If anyone is going to have a lamb and step out of the shadow and into the substance, he is the lamb. And there he is. He's coming Right now. John says, after me comes a man who ranks before me. I think I jumped ahead here. I apologize. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. This is clearly a very important statement that John is making, isn't it? Because we've already seen it a couple of times in this chapter. We saw it earlier in chapter 1 when John the Apostle quotes him as having said this. So it's obviously an incredibly important detail that Jesus is the pre-existent God. That he is eternal because only the eternal God can give eternal life. And only God is eternal. He says, I myself did not know him. It's another strange statement because isn't he related to Jesus? Aren't y'all related? Did Mary and Elizabeth not talk? They never sent a text message. But we know that that's not true because Mary came to Elizabeth's house and John the Baptist, he leaped in the womb when Mary came because of Jesus we know that they probably talked. They would have certainly known. But John is saying something that the Pharisees are guilty of as well. That I did not recognize him at first. And that's actually how the NASB translated, translates this. I did not recognize him. It's not that I didn't know that, who Jesus was. 
is I didn't realize the significance of who Jesus was. I didn't recognize it at first. After all, remember, Jesus was not stately in his appearance. He had no form or majesty. If you were to draw up in your mind what a Messiah would be and look like, the person of Jesus would not be it. Further, this sets John the Baptist up to testify how he knows that this is the Lamb of God. He's not just saying, I know that he's the Lamb of God because Elizabeth told me or because Mary told me. Who told John the Baptist that that's who this is? I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he may be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who told him this is the Lamb? God. If you want to have somebody testify and bear witness to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, who better to call than John the Baptist? John the Baptist, we're told, is sent from God. John the Baptist has learned from God. He's been instructed by God. God himself has confirmed that this is the Son of God. Who better? What a better witness. So then, if you and I don't believe his testimony, my friends, whose testimony would we believe? This is a strong testimony. But let's deal with the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove. Unfortunately, we have many paintings depicting the Holy Spirit as an actual dove. Let's make sure that we understand the Holy Spirit is not a dove. This is a metaphor. He says he came down like a dove. He came down from above. At the baptism event, the Father confirmed the Son and the Spirit came down upon Him. And this is perhaps one of the clearest pictures of the Trinity that we have in all of Scripture. Because at the baptism event, the Father spoke from heaven, the Spirit descended from heaven, and the Son was born witness from heaven. We have the triune God there in the waters of baptism. We said a few sermons ago in speaking of the Godhead that Godhead that God is one in essence, three in person. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. Yet the three members of the Godhead are all equally perfect, possessing all of the fullness of divinity and all deserving of our worship and obedience. So John the Baptist also came to know who this Jesus was for certain as the Spirit came down upon him. And do you know how you and I come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because the Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit comes within you, regenerating your heart, giving you eyes to see and testifying that this Jesus is the Christ. And until then, we will be just like the Pharisees who he could be standing among us, but we do not have eyes to see who he is. We need the work of the Spirit. Whereas John the Baptist's baptism was one of repentance 
indicating that the people were repenting and repentant, turning back to God, we're told that Christ's baptism of the Holy Spirit is now what brings us to God. Who's is greater? Many today have grossly distorted what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, thinking that it means some sort of separate mystical act wherein the person begins to speak in tongues which are not real the way that we have interpreted them today, or it means that you flop on the floor like a fish, and that's not a joke. That's what a lot of people think and believe. But that's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know? We're told in the New Testament that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you've been baptized with the Spirit. It's not a separate event. It's not another thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So if you have that crazy cousin who likes to run around the church telling you that you still need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you point them to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and say, I've done that, thank you. I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and so has every Christian been baptized with the Spirit the baptism of the Spirit is what brings you into the body of Christ. If you have not, if this hasn't happened, you're not a Christian. You might be a churchgoer, you might be a devoted churchgoer, but you're not a Christian until you've been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. John the Baptist says that he came baptizing with water, and the Jews questioned his authority and identity. But in effect, they told him, he said, in effect, that they haven't seen anything yet. I'm just baptizing with water, but someone is coming who's baptizing in the Spirit. I just baptize you in the, the waters, or in water, the water of the river. But one is coming who will impart to you the Spirit of God. Baptism of repentance was an outward action. The baptism of the Spirit produces the inward change. What do we take from all of this? Christ can do this because he is who John the Baptist says he is in verse 34. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He reiterates that he did indeed see this happen. And because it happened, he can testify that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that He is the Son of God. You realize that every last person who has been born into this world outside of Jesus Christ remains under the wrath of God because of our sinful nature and our own sinful actions. But you know what we're actually saved from? Many people think that hell is this place where there's a man with a pitchfork and a tail and that's what hell is. And he pokes you for all of eternity. But my friends, hell is where you will experience the unbridled holy fury of Almighty God. So you know what we're saved from? We're not saved from the man with a pitchfork. We're saved from the wrath of God. And it's only God who can take us away from the wrath of God. It's only God Himself 
who can save us from the wrath of God. Only God has that ability. And what did John the Baptist say? Behold, there he is. Finally, the one who can actually do it. Finally, the one who the bulls and the goats were pointing to. The one that the tabernacle pointed to. The one the temple pointed to. The one we have prophesied about the law. He is here and he's going to take the sin of the world away. And has this happened for you? Has that light gone on in your heart that says, behold, and that you've seen him and that you can testify today that he is the son of God and he has taken my sin away. And I stand justified in the eyes of God today because of that lamb of God. If it hasn't happened to you, my friend, know that we needed a lamb and God sent one. And if you will put your faith in his finished work, that you too will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending a lamb. As Abraham said, that the Lord himself will provide. You made good on that promise. And you provided a worthy sacrifice. In Christ Jesus, the one who was in the beginning, the one through whom all things were made, he bore flesh to bear our sin and be slaughtered. Lord, help us not to take that sacrifice lightly. Help us to love and cherish the work of Christ on the cross. I pray that just as John the Baptist has borne witness to this truth, that we would bear witness to this truth in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in public, wherever you place us that we would bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.